For some reason that we'll probably never fully understand, an extraordinary outpouring of energy began to occur around the year 1100. It was so powerful and so passionate that it transformed the way the world looked and thought about God, about justice and power, about women, love and art. This story starts with the almost unbelievable life of the woman we will come to know as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor had virtually everything this life can grant. Sunlit beauty, inherited power and wealth on a phenomenal scale. Kings as husbands, kings as sons. She lived an epic life in the middle of a whirlwind. Entangled with five mightily powerful men who fought for more than a century to control Western Europe. Surrounding them is an incredible array of people who lived in that world doing incredible things, from building stone cathedrals that streamed with sunlight, to fighting two crusades, to inventing fictional characters we still read about. We know of only a few of them, and what we do know of even these favoured few is limited by their records and our own comprehension. Come with us as we journey to meet Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry Plantagenet, Richard Lionheart, King John, and all the remarkable people surrounding them. To be in their presence is an exhilarating experience. Won't you join us? Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Episode 8, The Glorious Trumpet Call. It's the year 1145. Massive forces are building across the world. A crusade, the world war of its time, is about to begin. It will engage men from Paris to Jerusalem in battles witnessed by the gods themselves. Habituated as we are to instant news and instant responses to it, we're surprised that Pope Eugenius, new to the papal throne, didn't react publicly to the news of Edessa's fall for a year or more. Of course, word of the tragedy had filtered only slowly, slowly back to Europe, bits and pieces from traitors, refugees, and mercenaries, the stories confused and fragmented. At first, no one could believe what they were hearing. It would be as if we were told, Tokyo has disappeared. Sheer comprehension of the scale of the disaster took time. Late that summer of 1145, bishops of Armenia, traveling to Rome to meet with the Pope, brought more reports, included heated messages from Raymond, the ruler of the surviving crusader state of Antioch. Raymond's word carried weight. He was the younger brother of William X of Aquitaine, which made him the uncle of Queen Eleanor of France. Now that Edessa was gone, Raymond's kingdom of Antioch was at the very front lines of the crusader states. By then, the awful reports would be too consistent to ignore their news too bleak. Shortly after the visit of the Armenian bishops, Eugenius had sufficient command of the facts and what they could mean to Christianity to send word to young King Louis. 
We ask and command, Eugenius wrote, that those who are of God, above all the nobles, courageously gird themselves to save Christianity as their grandfathers had at the time of the First Crusade, fifty years before. Jerusalem itself, the city of God, was at risk. The papal summons to the young French king was based on the country's unbreakable thousand-year-old ties to the Catholic Church. At the time of the First Crusade, an earlier pope had described the French as, quote, chosen and beloved by God, set apart from all other people by your Catholic faith, unquote. Not only had the French spawned popes, famous religious orders, and great cathedrals, but the Capets were considered the most Catholic of all kings, swearing at their coronations to devote themselves to defending the Holy Church from its enemies. Unlike the Germans, whose wars with the papacy were born and reborn throughout the mists of time, there were no ugly history of French kings making war on Rome. Then, too, the Capets had the considerable advantage of Suger's pen. He had adored Louis's father, and wrote of him as if St. Denis, the Apostle of France, had personally laid his heavenly hand on the French king's brow, marking French monarchs apart from the wretched, pope-bashing rulers of other countries. Holy France also had a history of being remarkably good at making war. The French had dominated the triumphant First Crusade, which had wrested Jerusalem from the grip of the infidels. They accordingly had generations-deep ties to the Crusader states, with Frenchmen becoming Middle Eastern rulers and French princesses marrying Latin states' princes. Eleanor's uncle Raymond, just another younger brother with limited prospects back home, had left Europe to become the Prince of Antioch, creating powerful currents of shared family interests in his part of the world. French babies conceived during the First Crusade were plentiful on both sides of the Mediterranean, such as Alphonse Jourdain of Toulouse, whose name was derived from his baptism in the waters of the River Jordan. And there were other personal considerations that carried weight. For one, it might be thought that the French king was in need of a great penance after the Vitry disaster. The timing of Eugenius's letter was thus perfection, since Louis had already been considering his own response to the fall of Edessa. He had told some intimates that his long-dead older brother Philip, the boy prince who fell from his horse in Paris, had intended to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but had died before he could make the trip. Louis, devoutly religious, wanted to fulfill his dead brother's vow. By the time Eugenius's letter arrived, the French king was predisposed to swear an oath to gird himself for battle against the infidels, a first in history. No other reigning monarch had ever gone on crusade. On the other hand, his advisers were reluctant, worried about the king's lack of an heir and the still delicate stability of his kingdom. Pope Eugenius, hemmed in by the unsteady political situation in Rome, felt he couldn't travel to press Louis. 
but this pope had a powerful tool. If anyone alive could overcome the petty foot-dragging of court bureaucrats in Paris, it would be his mentor and advisor, Bernard of Clairvaux. It was agreed. Bernard would preach crusade at Louis' Easter court in Burgundy the following spring. Louis and Eleanor accordingly rode south that march into the Burgundian countryside, toward Pretty Vesoulet, which summoned travelers from its hillside above the Cure River. Mammoth logs of chestnut, oak, and beech from the ancient Morven forests went down the Cure, destined for Parisian stockades and fireplaces. Mineral springs along its banks sparkling with helium gas had been known to shelter water goddesses a thousand years before. A mere three hundred years before, Benedictines from zealous Cluny had built a monastery there, fronting along the local road to Compostela. Pilgrims learned to stop at the monastery's protective shade as they made their way to Spain. Eventually, Vesoulet itself became a major draw on the pilgrimage route when it announced that monks had discovered within its very walls relics of Mary Magdalene, Jesus' friend, the woman who had once humbly dried his freshly washed feet with her own hair. The first among his followers to bear witness to the resurrection, Magdalene was a major saint of medieval times. Like other medieval saints, Magdalene was believed to have a specific personal interest in humanity's troubles, in her case, taking up the cause of captives. Given that you could be held captive for a crime, a debt, a stumble on a rubble-strewn battlefield, a political dispute, purely for ransom, or to serve as a human bond that someone else would live up to a vow, there were a great many captives about, and most of them longed for a less restrictive lifestyle. In time, as prayers to St. Mary Magdalene led to freedom for fervent believers, the old pilgrim's custom of leaving small tokens behind in thanksgiving, a little metal, a lit candle, a crutch now happily abandoned, developed into the habit of carrying one's former chains to Vesalay. Perhaps after unruly heaps of chains had become a literal stumbling block to the faithful, an 11th century abbot decided to have them melted down and refashioned into iron railings to grace the altar visible proof of sainted Magdalene's great power. It was terrific publicity, and it drew the crowds, especially after the Pope himself dismissed other churches' claims to Magdalene relics. The crush of visitors eventually motivated construction of a great new cathedral. What we know now as one of the most striking of pre-Gothic churches with its immense nave and striped alabaster and black columns of semi-translucent limestone, is not the church that Louis and Eleanor saw. It was rebuilt several times before it looked as we see it. All that rebuilding wasn't driven by mere fashion. The cathedral's history was dogged by tragedy, perhaps a cosmic response to the suffering of all those miserable captives begging Magdalene for freedom. Very early on, generations of Norman and then Saracen invaders 
pillaged across the entire area, destroying one after another of the earliest churches on the site. A new church was finished in 1104, after the invasions had ebbed. To pay for it, the ambitious abbot named Artaud imposed heavy taxes on the citizens of Vesoulet. He apparently thought they'd understand how reasonable it was to pay for their share of the financial returns to be anticipated from enhanced tourism. He was wrong. Misguided Artaud was murdered by unhappy taxpayers. Then there was a hideous fire some fifteen years after construction was finished, on Mary Magdalene's very feast day, July 21st. More than a thousand people died. Perhaps in line with its bloody history, the Cathedral of St. Mary Magdalene became the favored site for launching crusades. Pope Urban II had planned to preach the First Crusade from Vézelay in 1095, the armies of Richard Lionheart and Philip Augustus would rendezvous in its square in the gaudy summer of 1190 at the beginning of the Third Crusade. And now, at the end of March 1146, Bernard of Clairvaux would speak from its pulpit to call the European world to the second taking of the cross. It was said that 100,000 people came to hear him, so many that the event had to be moved outside. Even the great knave of the Magdalene could not hold them all. And here's a quick side note. In 1976, hundreds of years after Vézelay was the epicenter of Christianity, a priest who worked at the cathedral rediscovered that, at midday of the summer solstice, sunlight coming through the windows in the south walls falls in luminous pools along the center axis of the main aisle guiding one's eye directly to the altar. Bernard of Clairvaux's sermon at Vézelay that Easter Sunday, 1146, was witnessed by a man named Odo of Dieu. Odo, who will be with us for a while, was Suger's successor as abbot of the great French cathedral of Saint-Denis, Louis Capet's personal chaplain, and a cranky chronicler of the Second Crusade. He sounds thoroughly impressed with the scene at Vézelay. Since there was no place in the cathedral that could hold the multitude of participants, a wooden platform was built for the abbot in a field so that he could speak to be both seen and heard. Bernard mounted the platform together with the king, who wore the crusader's cross. It was immensely meaningful. Crusaders were to wear their crosses until their vows to save the Holy Land were fulfilled. Some proud veterans who died in their beds years afterwards had themselves depicted on their sepulchres with their crusader crosses prominently featured on their tunics. Odo described the scene on that day in 1145 by saying, quote, When the heavenly instrument Bernard poured out the dew of the divine word, the people on all sides began to clamor and to demand crosses. When he had passed out the crosses which had been already prepared, he was forced to tear his clothing into crosses. Unquote. 
Personal feuds that had shed blood among nobles for decades were dropped in light of this war for God. The House of Blois was there, as were the Count of Toulouse, the Flemish, Norman lords, aristocrats from the Ile de France. Then, too, there is the legend, often repeated and possibly even true in whole or in part, that Queen Eleanor burst upon the scene with the dazzle for which mythology adores her. This queen, undoubtedly with her king's blessing, was not about to be left behind by the enthralling sweep of the greatest event in her lifetime. Twenty-two years old, recently the mother of a baby girl, the Duchess Queen was said to have galloped through the immense throng on a white horse, dressed in white and gold, surrounded by the glamorous ladies of her court on splendid horses of their own. Once they dismounted, white plumes in their glossy hair, the noblewomen passed out feathers to the crowd as symbols of virtue, urging the laggards to commit to God's cause. The lords who vowed to accompany their monarchs were a literal roster of the great nobles, from Aquitaine, from Brittany, from Lorraine, Burgundy, Alsace, Savoy, and the Auvergne, from province and even arrogant Normandy. They could lose everything, from hard-won lands to a throne to life itself, beginning with the great outlay of funds needed for such a trip. In the First Crusade, Robert of Normandy had sold his entire inheritance, the dukedom itself, while we already know that Eleanor's grandfather had mortgaged Toulouse. They might calculate, but the calculation did not stop them. Eleanor even knelt before her old adversary, Bernard, to pledge herself, her ladies, and, most critically, her Aquitanian vassals. This queen and her king would together share the single greatest event of their age. And so the Second Crusade was launched, fifty years after the first. This was no small undertaking. As Jonathan Riley Smith, a historian of the Crusades, wrote, Crusades were arduous, frightening, dangerous, and expensive, literally the world wars of their age. History focuses on the famous Crusade of the Middle Ages, but Crusades were fought almost continuously for half a millennium, from the coast of Spain to Eastern Europe to Jerusalem and beyond. It would have been difficult if you'd been a European male alive over a span of some 500 years to avoid pressure to enroll for the fight, despite alarming past experience. Not only could crusading leave your family destitute, Eleanor's grandfather had spent so much on his failed efforts in the Middle East that he seriously destabilized the Aquitanian economy and had to borrow from his wife's family. But you had a very real prospect of dying before you could bankrupt everyone back home. It's impossible to do more here than crudely summarize the ocean of legends, histories, and analyses that critique and justify why men would travel half a world to fight utter strangers and risk losing their lives and their fortunes. Once just a tiny, 
harmless seeds sprouting in the far-off east, the Muslim faith proved frighteningly muscular, taking over most of what had been the Byzantine world, winning Jerusalem in 637, and then sweeping its battle flags around the shores of the Mediterranean into Europe itself. Christianity would spend the better part of 500 years reconquering Spain from these powerful invaders, who also brought their science, their food, and their art. Even France itself, the strongest of medieval countries in Western Europe, had barely been saved from Islam thanks to the sword of Charles Martel in 732. The struggle to hold Islam at bay occupied popes, kings, knights, bishops, nobles, and laymen for more than 30 medieval generations. There was an uneasy sense of self-blame among Europeans, who even then feared that they'd become spiritually flabby compared to these alarming competitors. The chronicler William of Newburgh, who lived at the time of the Second Crusade, worried aloud that the, quote, luxury and greed of our Christian world, unquote, left Westerners physically and mentally weakened. Yet, Muslims would prove less vindictive than Europeans may have feared. For one thing, they didn't sever captured Jerusalem from Christianity. For centuries after Jerusalem fell to Islam in 637, Western pilgrims who longed to visit the places where Jesus had lived continued to make their way to the Holy Land. Inevitably, some were robbed, some were roughed up. Some were killed. Tensions eventually flared. A flashpoint was the Saracens' destruction of Jerusalem's Church of the Holy Sepulchre in 1009, considered a particularly blatant insult in Western eyes. Growing distrust in Europe over Islam's power slowly forged a tenuous link with the West's long-lost sibling, the Byzantine Empire, a Christian civilization that stood for centuries at Islam's threshold. There was hope in some Western quarters that Byzantium might possibly forget its old differences with Catholicism and gratefully reunite with its true friends in Europe. Momentum thus slowly built on both ends of the Mediterranean to win back Christianity's sacred places, to force the feared Muslims back into their desert wilderness. It took generations. The proud Byzantines would not formally ask the Christian West for help until 1096, when the First Crusade was launched. For the next three very long years, as tens of thousands of Westerners battled with Muslim armies, Europe lived in daily dread of what the future might hold. As historian Jonathan Phillips tells it, a steady stream of deserters staggering back from the Holy Land vividly suggested that the entire crusade was doomed. However, to Europe's eventual delight, by 1099 it could bask in the heady relief of victory. Jerusalem was back in Christian hands. The faithful were certain their restored world dominance would last forever. In fact, it lasted little more than two generations, until the fall of Edessa sparked the panicked fear that the triumph of the First Crusade was fading, that Holy Jerusalem might again 
be lost. We should take a few moments to think through what was coming to these people, as alive, as filled with energy, ambition, and pride, then as we are now. Thoughtful men were not unaware of a problem at the very core of a crusade, which was the troubling theological implications of killing human beings in God's name. The Catholic Church had never been entirely clear on this point. In Christianity's early days, its followers were pacifists, believing that the Sixth Commandment forbade not only actual fighting, but even carrying defensive weapons. However, the times and the thinking, not to mention the threats, changed over the centuries, so that later Catholic doctrine could make room for the fighting knights with which the world found itself lavishly supplied. After all, there was a vivid combative tradition embodied in God's greatest warrior, St. Michael the Archangel, who fought Satan himself and won. Pacifism gave way. Thus, while murder was always a grave sin, killing might not be, depending on the circumstances. Force against pagans and heretics, for example, was applauded and liberally applied. For that matter, the Church had openly called on French Catholic knights to make war against equally Catholic Germans several hundred years before, as popes fought on horseback for supremacy in matters of temporal government. Bernard of Clairvaux himself wrote a widely circulated apostolic letter in which he sent his authoritative stamp of approval to the idea that using one's sword to dispatch Holy Mother Church's enemies was right and just. Defending the innocent from harm was a good thing, doubly so when the holy places of Christendom and pilgrims wishing to visit them were involved. The church even saw its way clear of becoming a player in the medieval equivalent of the international arms trade. Then, too, a great part of what can justifiably be called the crusading spirit was the reality that at this time and in this world, the constant, overriding human concern was one's individual relationship with God. Sin was everywhere humanity's unfortunate inheritance from Eve's taking of the apple. When sin stained one's soul, as it inevitably would, atonement to God was essential if one wanted to make your way to heaven. Fasting, prayer, tithing, good works, or a trip to Compostela would normally suffice. But going to the Holy Land was the ultimate penance, effective for even the gravest sins. Crusading thus became the perfected alliance of the two great human endeavors of the 12th century, spirituality and war. Men could get to the other world by fighting in this one. If you were a fighting man around the year 1145, it was irresistible. Vézelay was the new blast on the glorious trumpet that called again to the new men of a new era. Bernard of Clairvaux won over the aristocracy of France, including the king and queen themselves. Christian Europe would again gird itself for battle. The Second Crusade had begun. Rejoin us next time for the fabulous story of the Second Crusade, 
a swirl of kings and warriors, bishops freezing in the snow, queens bending over bleeding men, breathtaking courage, and cynical betrayal. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author, Karen Markle Nab. A big thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again September 4th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and now on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me.